0: Well, I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage we'll be considering this evening from Isaiah chapter 2. The prophet Isaiah chapter 2. At Ontario United Reformed Church, we have been making our way through this majestic book. We are now, uh, well, next week we'll be in chapter 20. And it's been quite the journey so far. And this was one of my favorite portions so far and I'm excited to bring that, this passage before you this evening for us to consider. So before we hear God's word, let's bow before him in prayer and ask for his aid. Let us pray. Lord, we humbly come before you this evening again on this day of rest and gladness and acknowledge our need of you. And we need to hear your word, Lord. Uh, We were made for you, to live in communion with you, and to hear and receive from you your good word, uh, especially the gospel for our souls. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would give us attentive hearts to hear your word and also to receive it and apply it and let it have its impression upon our hearts, changing us and conforming us evermore into the image of Christ And Lord, we ask that you would be among us by your spirit even now, that you would quicken and enliven us and enlighten us by your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, loved ones, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 22, the whole chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, "'Against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. "'Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, "'and against all the oaks of Bashan, "'against all the lofty mountains, "'and against all the uplifted hills, "'against every high tower, against every fortified wall, "'against all the ships of Tarshish, "'and against all the beautiful craft. "'And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, "'and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low.' And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats. To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? So far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it together this evening. Well, we all long for fulfillment in life, do we not? We long for purpose. We want to come, each of us, to the end of our own life and arrive sort of at the top of a mountain of our own achievements. We want to be able to look back on our life and see that it was all worth something, that it all meant something more than just passing pleasures along the way. And in this passage here, we we find that human history does have indeed a final destination. That everything is flowing in the same direction toward that point of finality, that point of purpose, this point of glory on the horizon before us. And it is symbolized here in this text by the mountain of the Lord. So the question for us tonight is, are you walking in the light towards that mountain of the Lord with hope? Or are you hiding out? In the lowlands, in this landscape of the world that is hopelessly flat and despairing. You know, tonight, God wants to remind us that He will be exalted in the end and that He will mend this broken world that has been broken by our own sin and rebellion against Him. And Isaiah is giving us here a picture of the end of human history. And we find that God will graciously exalt The humble who turn to him in faith, but the proud who hide away from him and exalt themselves, they will be humbled in the end by his mighty wrath. And so our three points tonight will be first, the mountain of the Lord, and then secondly, the lowlands, and thirdly, the light of hope. So first, Isaiah gives us this glorious picture here in the opening of this text of the Mountain of the Lord in verses 1 through 5. What is Isaiah talking about? Well, it's important to realize that all ancient people of Isaiah's day and before thought of mountains with symbolic value. And I want to demonstrate that for us tonight. The mountain symbolizes, first of all, Purity. Is a place that is lifted up. You can imagine it. You can even look behind us and see the mountains there. Lifted up, nearly touching the skies. And so it's preserved from all the impurities that lie below in the valley. And so the mountain is a symbol of heavenly purity. The mountain also symbolizes perspective. It is a place of vision. You can see everything around you. You have no blind spots. Therefore, the mountain is a symbol of impartial truth and justice because you can see things clearly. Not only that, the mountain also symbolizes protection. It is a place of strength and refuge because there upon the mountain you can see your enemies who might be coming from afar and you have that high ground to attack them, right? Therefore, the mountain is a symbol of refuge, of peace, protection, and rest. The mountain also symbolizes prosperity because there we find it is a place of life. We can picture it and imagine the rain and the snow melts and the natural springs that rise up in the mountains and the water flows down the mountains in every direction from the mountains, providing fertile land below. So the mountain is a symbol of abundant life and prosperity. Considering these symbolic values of the mountain, it's easy to see why the ancient people came to see the mountain as a powerful symbol of those things. Purity, perspective, protection, and prosperity. In a word, we can say the mountain symbolized the peace of the Lord. Shalom, that, that word that encompasses the fullness of peace. Well-ordered life in abundance. For this reason, the symbol of mountain has always been associated with heavenly places where God, the Creator, dwells. The mountains are sort of nature's symbolic ladders to go up and meet God. And in that way, they show us that the blessings in life, they come from the God who meets us on the mountain. In other words, if you really want truth, peace, rest, life, and prosperity in life, you need to go to the God of the mountains. One author puts it this way. He says, salvation in the Old Testament is often viewed in spatial terms, meaning that salvation is found where Yahweh is present. And more often than not, Yahweh seems to be present and reveals himself to humanity on mountains. And I want to kind of give us a survey here. We, we find this all the way back in Genesis 2, where Eden, the Garden of Eden, is presented to us as a garden situated on a mountaintop. And we know that because the rivers, the four rivers flow down from it. Uh, giving water to, the, to all the earth. And we can imagine how, as well, the rest of the Bible's story in it, we find that God's favorite meeting place, so to speak, is on the mountaintops. And we can kind of look back at all of redemptive history and see this ridgeline of the sacred Sierras or the Grand Tetons of redemptive history. And we find that God has done significant, momentous things on mountaintops What has God done? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, as we already considered, Adam and Eve, he placed them there on the mountain where they were to dwell with him in paradise. And then he restarted humanity after the flood with Noah on a mountain. Then he tested Abraham's obedience on a mountaintop when he had to sacrifice Isaac, and then the Lord stopped him and provided. Then he spoke to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Horeb. Afterwards, after taking uh, Israel out of Egypt, he met them on Mount Sinai and gave them the law. Then King Solomon, David's son, built God's house, the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Elijah, of course, had his showdown on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. We find all these rich stories in the Old Testament of God doing Big things on mountains. Well, what about the New Testament? We find that Jesus as well did many things on mountaintops. Jesus began his ministry defeating Satan on a mountain in his third temptation when uh, the accuser lifted him up on a mountain and displayed the whole world. As well, we find Jesus preached his famous sermon on the mount. He often snuck away to commune with his father in prayer on Mountaintops, mountains. He was transfigured in glory before his closest disciples on a mountain. At the high point of his ministry, we find the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on Mount Calvary for us. That's not all. After his resurrection, we find that he gave his great commission on a mountain. And then Jesus ascended into the celestial dimension of God's own presence And dwells now on the heavenly Mount Zion. And he has promised to come back, come back on Mount, the Mount of Olives. And so what is God telling us? Well, I think he's saying that humanity was meant to dwell with God on the mountain and not an actual literal mountain necessarily, but rather that sacred space that the mountain symbolizes. We were made for that sacred space where God meets his people with his shalom, with the fullness of his peace and presence. We were made to live with God. And the mountain symbolizes that. In a word, the mountain of the Lord symbolically represents the world as it should be. But that is not the world that we live in today. And because of that, we come to the second point, the lowlands. After showing us this mountain of the Lord, Isaiah takes us down into the lowlands, into the shadowlands, where we find that humanity has fallen off the mountaintop, kind of like pebbles tumbling, tumbling down into the valley below, downstream. We've estranged ourselves from the source of light and peace, God himself, by our sin and rebellion against him. And we find ourselves now in this world which is kind of dark and chaotic, in the vision of the lowlands here in Isaiah, it reminded me as I read it and meditated of the, the movie, The Lion King. I'm not sure if there are any kids here. It's an old movie anyways. But you remember how Mufasa, uh, the king, right? He tells his son Simba that everything that the light touches is their kingdom. And then Simba, as a young, curious kid, says, well, dad, what about that shadowy place over there? And Mufasa replies, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. Well, that's where Isaiah takes us here in this passage. He takes us on a tour through the shadowy place of the world apart from the light of God. Isaiah says in verse 6 that the Lord has left his people. Left his people. What does that mean? He says, "You you, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. Well, it means that God had given them over to their sins for a time. In a sense, God let Israel have what they wanted. And this is what is happening in society today as well. Paul talks about that in Romans 1, giving people over to their sins, giving them over to their evil desires. When we look at the world today, broken and plagued with hatred, sorrow, division, and death, well, that world was born out of our own wanton desires and wants that are evil and distorted. James says it in this way, In his letter, he says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And so we find that our upside-down desires, our backwards wanting, wanting things that we should not want, eventually results in the deconstruction of God's world. In other words, we have turned the lush garden of the mountaintop into a shadowy desert, the lowlands, because of our sin and rebellion, rejecting God. Again, another Disney movie like in Sleeping Beauty, Eve's want in the beginning to become like God's equal turned into a bite that put all of God's beautiful creation into this kind of sleep of death. And that's what's happened in the beginning, and that's still what happens with our own lives as well with our sinful wants. We live in the shadowy lowlands because that is what we wanted in our sinful rebellion against God. We didn't want the bad consequences. We didn't want to end up there. But we have all wanted, each one of us have wanted different kinds of sins, different kinds of ways of ruling our own life according to our own personal preferences that have led us to this place that is torn asunder by wars and disease. I want to point out three main things that Isaiah tells us here about the lowlands that we live in. Three tendencies that are inherent in all of us, that keep us in the shadowy lowlands. First, we tend to seek fullness in all other things but God himself. And Isaiah uses in verses 6 to 8 the word full three times. Full. Now, without God, without God, we try to fill ourselves up with all kinds of things. Direction in life, whether that's through, as in Isaiah's day, sorcery or superstition, or in our day, godless science. We try and fill ourselves up, boost ourselves up in that way. Or materialism, gold and silver, or today, cars and technology. Or it might be military might, finding security and filling ourselves up with that horse-drawn chariots or nuclear bombs of today. And of course, we have the idols, the idols that are perpetual around us, things like money, sex, and power. Why do we chase after these things? Well, we hope that they will fill us up, that they will satisfy us, that they will quench our heart's thirst. But these things cannot and do not fully satisfy. They cannot give us the peace that only God was meant to. To give us in the end. He can't, they cannot give us the peace that we have lost as we've turned away from God. And so Isaiah says here in verse 20 that on the last day and the day that Jesus returns, that people will throw away all of their idols to the moles and the bats, the very things that they sought fulfillment in this life. Well, they will find to be worthless and vain in the end. Why? Because of the final judgment day well, in that day, we will have the proper perspective to see that all these idols that we chased after, find, seeking fulfillment in those things, well, they are only shadows of the fullness that God alone can give us. Only shadows of the fullness that God alone can give us. And so that's the first tendency. We tend to fill ourselves up with things other than God, and this keeps us in the lowlands. Secondly, we tend to lift ourselves up, exalting ourselves, pride. Pride destroys us. In verse 12, Isaiah speaks of humanity as proud and lofty. We are self-exalting. Instead of taking the lowest seat, we tend to take the high seat for ourselves all throughout life. And this keeps us as well from loving God properly and loving our neighbor as ourself. And so too that pride at work within us keeps us in the lowlands that Isaiah is describing. So we've seen... The seeking fulfillment and idols and then the pride within us. Now the third tendency is that we try to hide. We try to hide from God, instead of coming to Him. We tend to avoid God in our own pride and in search for fullness apart from Him, and this is why we are in the lowlands and stay there. In pride, we've estranged ourselves from the Lord of the mountain, the only one who can give us peace. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to hide from the Lord. He doesn't want you to hide from the Lord. He wants you to come to him. In fact, here in Isaiah and throughout Isaiah, God is calling us to come back to him, to go back to the mountain. We find that in verse three through four. This is a vision of all kinds of people returning back to God. It says here, many peoples will come. The Hebrew words here for many peoples share the same roots as the name Abraham. So God God called Abraham the father of many peoples, of many nations, and in fulfillment of his great promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through him all the nations would be blessed. Here we find Isaiah seeing that fulfillment happening. He's foreseeing the great commission of all nations, Gentiles, being gathered in to God's people on the last day and returning to the mountain of the Lord where God dwells. And strikingly, the language in verse 3 refers to the peoples ascending the mountain like an anti-gravitational river flowing upstream. You can kind of picture it and imagine it. This is already happening as God is preaching through his servants throughout the world his gospel of peace. God is creating this anti-gravitational river of peoples returning to him and ascending back to the Lord by his grace. The word of Jesus Christ goes forth in his changing hearts, turning people back to him by the power of his loving word of good news. How can we, how can we join into that anti gravitational river that flows back towards God? Well it is by doing the very opposite of those three tendencies we looked at earlier that have estranged us from God. So we need to stop trying to fill ourselves with things other than God and instead throw away our vain idols that we seek fulfillment in, and instead seek fulfillment in God alone. So whatever that is for you right now that you're seeking fulfillment in apart from God, throw it away. You won't find fullness there. You'll find it only in God and Him alone. Stop trying to exalt yourself in life. Instead, humble yourself by faith, trusting that on the last day, God will exalt you. He will exalt you if you trust in Him. And stop hiding from God. He knows you. He sees you. Instead, come to him. Go to him. Leave the shadowy lowlands and begin to walk in the light of his peace. Go to him. He is compassionate. He is gentle and lowly of heart. He wants you to come to him. Even though we've estranged ourselves from God and now dwell in the lowlands, God wants all peoples to come to him. How do we know that? Well, the God of the mountain, loved ones, became the God of the lowlands. God himself, think of this, in the gospel, stooped so low, he came into the shadows where he died on the cross for us. Why? In order to bring us back to him. He came so low that he was literally placed under a mountain, so to speak, placed in the tomb, under a stone, inside of a cold stone tomb. Jesus Christ is now risen and anointed as the Lord One who descended into the lowlands but now is exalted in glory and currently sitting and ruling and reigning at the right hand of God on high. Where? The celestial Mount Zion. The Son of God's descent from glory into the lowlands and His ascension to the mountain of the Lord has given us great hope. That's our third point, the light of hope. Look at verse 5 again where we find this. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. God is calling his people, you, his covenant people, his church, his community, to live in the shining reality of his presence and his promises. God doesn't want us to just go through life dragging our feet through the lowlands, grumbling and complaining. No. God is calling us to action. He wants us to live in a certain way with holy purpose After all, we have a glorious mountain of peace and joy that we are headed to upon the horizon. That's our final destination. We will arrive. He has promised it. It is sure. So when we see the problems in our culture, in the world, it's so easy for us to cast the blame on politicians, right? And blame others in the culture. Well, is that true though? Are there are, are there ways, yes, that others have messed up society? Yes, of course. But is there nothing that we can do about it? Well, in his book, The Second Mountain, New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks looks back in American culture and he's looked back to big changes in culture and has concluded that the politicians are not really the ones that have led change over the years. He says this, instead, it's moral activists and cultural pioneers Those who shape the manners and mores are true legislators of mankind. They wield the greatest power and influence. It usually starts with a subculture. A small group of creative individuals finds the current moral ecology oppressive and alienating. So they go back in history and update an old moral ecology that seems to provide a better way to live. They create a lifestyle that others find attractive. If you can create a social movement that people want to join, they will bend their energies and ideas to you. So Again, let me repeat that. If you can create a social movement that people will want to join, they will bend their energies and ideas to you. Is this not what Jesus calls us to do, to be? A subculture in the midst of the broader culture, a small group of individuals committed to Jesus and his way of living life together here by faith, and Jesus' way, is better, the better way to live. And in this broken world, in the middle of the lowlands, Jesus wants us to create a meaningful lifestyle together that others will find attractive and draw them into that. And Isaiah gives us this imagery here of melting down weapons, right, to beat them into tools for what? For gardening, for gardening. Uh, and that's a picture of end-time peace that should be visible in our life here and now. Gardening, cultivating a newness of life, building a a better life together. We can begin to do that together in Christ by faith. And this is what our Lord Jesus referred to as well when he told his followers on the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In that teaching, Jesus doesn't use the second person singular, you, as an individual, but rather second person plural, ye or y'all, as a group, right? (laughs) Jesus uh, doesn't want us to be little lonely lights on a hill. No, not little lonely lights. He calls us to be a community of life together, community of light. And in his commentary on Isaiah, Ray Ortland says this. I love this. He says, when believers walk in the light together, right? We Christians become a prophetic presence in our generation as the nations can see their own most deeply desired future in our life together. So as the world is crashing and crumbling down around us, we have this opportunity, the God that Jesus is calling us to, to live as that city upon a hill to show the world a better way of living as we're heading towards that mountain of the Lord. You know, a family in our church uh, with a lot of little young ones have recently recommended a book series to me which is written for young adults. It's called The Green Ember Series. Not sure if any of you... Okay, I got a thumbs up. Uh, good. By S.D. Smith, and he's a committed Christian, and it comes out in his writing. The hope is expressed there throughout the story, and it reflects our hope for this world in Christ. And in this story, the main characters are rabbits that live in the great wood. Their homeland has been overtaken by evil, very much like the lowlands that Isaiah describes here. But it's not ultimately a story about brokenness. It's a story about healing. Their protagonists find hope in a community that lives where? At Cloud Mountain. Not a coincidence, I don't think. Even though the great wood was raised by destructive fire, the community at Cloud Mountain have a chant that they repeat in triumph. Their chant of hope is this, it shall not be so in the mended wood. What a beautiful chant. The people at Cloud Mountain were bound together by that common hope and their commitment to see it come to fruition. The anticipation for the mended wood, the great wood to be healed in the end. And that too is a picture of what we long for, of what we should be and what God has promised to us. Our common hope for the mending of God's world, the renewing of his great creation is this strong tie that should bind us together in Christ. We need to live in anticipation of that future. Set it before us and live with our eyes set on it. Remember that even as the world falls apart, that we ought to teach our hearts that same kind of triumphant hope Beset by dangers and evil all around, we need to remind ourselves that in Christ, it shall not be so in the mended world to come, the new creation. It shall not be so. The Green Ember series ends with the realization of that hope that they so long for, which fits very well with the hope we have in Christ. It reads this way. It's a quote from the book. And the great wood did mend. Brighter and brighter, it shined with more and more light to share. Mending begat mending, and the healing grew like a disease in reverse until the wholeness spread to the edge of every map. That is such a fitting description of the hope that we have, the renewal of all things that Christ has promised for us, that he has won for us through his death. And, resurrection. and in fact, in Isaiah 11, verse 9, the mountain of the Lord, that imagery reappears again later in Isaiah's uh, book here. And God promises that nothing will harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so the promise is that God's holy mountain of purity, peace, and prosperity will not just be this one singular place, but it will encompass the entirety of God's creation. The whole earth will be filled with God's own presence. That is our hope for the future. Why then should we work for peace here and now? Because here and now is where the mending begins to take place. Right now. What did Jesus teach us about the kingdom of God? It is here and it is already coming. He said, "The kingdom of God is in your midst." That means that God's kingdom is currently already breaking into our world. The holy mountain already has its foothold, so to speak, in our present evil age. First John says it this way: "The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining." The true light is, in fact, shining of one, despite the darkness. It was true in John's day; it's true still today. What's the proof of that? We considered it last week together, right, with Christians around the world. The Lord Jesus Christ is exalted now in his resurrection from the dead. He's ascended now to God's holy mountain and glory where he reigns and rules forevermore. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Jesus will come back to bring a final shaking and a final mending of God's good creation. So come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.